Hi, this is Pastor Paul J. Chandran, and you're listening to Life Church Castle Hill Podcast. Shall we give the Lord a clap offering, church? Hallelujah. It is always a joy and a privilege to bring God's word into your homes. In this new series that we are on, a joyful letter from lockdown on the book of Philippians. This is the second message. I want to take you to the passage of scripture in Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 to verses 26. And I want to title this, Joy in the Sovereignty of God. Last week we explored that Paul found joy even in lockdown. And we found that he found joy in three things. One, it was the supplication which was personally enriching. And two, the anticipation which was personally encouraging. And thirdly, the association which was personally endearing. And Paul grounded himself in the gospel and the partnership of the gospel that he had with the Philippian church. So today we're going to take it deeper. Paul is actually in Roman prison and the Philippian church was very concerned about the mental state of Paul and also the extension of the gospel. Has it been hindered because Paul is in prison and he's been in prison for too long? So with concern, they send a man from Philippi to, to bring help and bring and meet the needs of Paul. And now they are waiting anticip- and they are anticipating a reply from Paul. So Paul is penning this letter as a thanksgiving letter. And he's writing to them the condition that he's facing and in the midst of it, how God is using it for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom. So I want you to ask yourself this key question. Is joy possible? How is joy possible in the face of adversities? How is joy possible in the face of personal difficulties, in the face of public disapproval and going through challenges? And here Paul is giving us a missionary report. It's like when you have sent uh, support to a missionary and you eagerly wait for their report. Uh, And here Paul is writing to his friends a missionary report, so to speak, in terms of what is going on, not only within himself, but also around him in his circumstances, how God is moving and working the gospel. So praise God. Hallelujah. So in verses 12 and verses 26 is what we're going to be focusing on. This whole chapter, uh, there's so much uh, emphasis on Jesus and the gospel. I shared with you that the word Jesus appears at least 18 times in chapter one alone. And the word gospel appears at least six times. And here there are two bookends I want to give you. Verse 12 and verse 25 have the same word in the Greek. It's the word advance in verse 12 and the word progress in verse 25. And I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, the gospel is now making progress. That's the word. And Paul writes in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So it's like this, this word progress becomes the bookends for this passage. So he's speaking to the Philippian church, how the gospel is making progress. At the same time, he says, I want to come and meet you and make progress in your own faith. So how this progress is made is how you will find within this chapter, within this section. So I want to talk about um, how is joy possible? 
in the life of Paul. And two specific experiences that he had that I want to highlight. In verse 18, uh, all the way from, sorry, from verse 12, all the way to verse 18, it speaks about the joy in the experience of public denunciation. In other words, he's being, he's going through challenge of being in chains and he's facing his critics and he is facing crisis in his life. So public denunciation, how Paul experienced it and how Paul had joy in the midst of it. Then how, did, how is it possible for Paul to face not only the, that kind of public denunciation, but in the joy of expectation of providential deliverance, how God would deliver Paul. And he writes later on from verse 19 to verse 26, that whether by life or by death, he will experience God's deliverance. So we want to look at it today. How is joy possible in the life of Apostle Paul? Number one, in the first section, in verses 12 to verse 18, I want to give you three things to highlight, three things to pay attention to. One, Paul found joy in being in chains because his captors were evangelized. Number two, his colleagues were emboldened. And number three, his critics were exposed. So I want to look at it one by one. His captors were evangelized. In verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I want you to circle that word, advance the gospel, because that's the key thing. This chapter is all about how the gospel is making progress. But as Paul recollects it, he re he's thinking about what the Philippian church are concerned about. The Philippian church are concerned Paul is in prison for too long. Is the gospel being advanced? Is the extension of the kingdom of God happening in and through Paul? So Paul is writing for their concern and he's replying to them that what has happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel. So two things I want to highlight from here. Number one, it is what has happened to me. If you pay attention to what has happened to Paul, from Acts chapter 21 all the way to Acts chapter 28, you will know what is happening in the life of Paul. Let me give you a couple of things. Number one, he was making an offering in the temple. He went to offer in the temple. A mob gathered around him and started to beat him up. And they falsely accused him. Sixty men, Jewish men, took a vow that they will neither eat nor sleep until they killed Paul. And then Paul was rescued by the Romans and they took him and they moved him to Caesarea Philippi. So in Caesarea, he was in prison for two years. And when he was there in prison for two years, he met with the, uh, two governors. He testified before two governors, Festus and Felix. And they kept him in prison because they wanted bribe from him. And because Paul did not pay it, he continued there in prison. And one day he shared, he even shared the gospel with King Agrippa. And finally, he appealed to King Agrippa. I want to, uh, I want to what? Appeal to Caesar, he says. And as a result, he was put in a boat and sent to Rome. The boat did not make it to Rome. Uh, it sank in the Mediterranean Sea, but R Paul was brought into Rome eventually in chains. And now Paul is in house arrest in, pr in a prison in Rome for two years already. And finally, uh, when he is in prison in Rome, the, his opponents are destroying his credibility, his reputation, and they are preaching against him. And I want you to listen to me carefully. This is the things that Paul has been going through. So what Paul says is, what things that have happened, all the things that have happened has happened to truly advance the gospel. 
Take a step back and ask yourself this question. Are you able to reflect upon life and say, everything that I've gone through has been a necessary journey for me that for, to advance the kingdom of God, for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom, God has done these things. Can you see how Paul took a high view of God? He had a high view of the providence of God. And not only that, he, he came to a point where he says, what has happened to me has truly advanced the kingdom, advanced the gospel. Now, last week I talked to you, what is the gospel? The gospel is three things. It is a message that we believe. It is a person that we receive and a life that we live. Now, gospel is that Christ came to die for you and for me. And this gospel needs to be preached to the ends of the earth. And Paul says that he is advancing the gospel even while he's in prison in Rome. And the word advance is a beautiful word. It's a word for a military a team, a, a, a military team, the first team that arrives in a scene to remove the obstacles for the oncoming, uh, for, the, uh, for the coming uh, army. So in other words, they're the ones who come and remove all the dangers, remove all the hindrances. So what Paul is saying is, uh, this word he uses, he says, I have come here to clear the way for the gospel to come to Rome. <laughs> Hallelujah. And he says, I'm making advance. The, ad the gospel is now making advance. Praise God. So the chains that Paul was in wasn't hindering the gospel work, but was actually helping the work of the gospel. So the chains did not hinder him. The chains actually helped him to promote gospel. That's what he was trying to highlight. Isn't this what you find in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9? The Bible says, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Hallelujah. No matter what is binding you, no matter what you find in your, in your circumstances of life, that is, you're tied to a chain, can I humbly say this? Those chains cannot contain the word of God. I want you to listen to me. God's kingdom will continue to advance. The purposes and the plan of God will continue to come to pass. And that is what Paul was trying to highlight to the Philippian church. His captors are being evangelized. How? Because what has happened to him up to now has truly served to advance the kingdom of God. Are you able to say this boldly? That the prison that you're in currently the chains that you're in currently, that you're using it as a pulpit, the prison has become a pulpit, that your work has become an, a place of witness. Can you humbly say that before God? If not, we need to come and examine how we live our lives. And for Paul, no matter what he was going through, he recognized God used David's slingshot to kill Goliath. God used Moses' rod to bring deliverance in Egypt. And God is using Paul's chains to bring deliverance in Rome. Hallelujah. And that is how gospel-centered Paul was. That he was truly anchored in the knowledge that God is sovereign and he's bringing about his purposes come to pass in his life. Secondly, look at verse 13. It says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I want you to highlight a couple of things here. It says, become known. Paul is in prison and he's in prison in Rome and the, and the Bible says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. I want to pay attention to the imperial guard. And secondly, to all the rest. 
That means people, believers in Rome, both believers and non-believers, they are able to know that Paul's imprisonment is to advance the gospel and Paul is imprisoned for Christ, isn't it? And Paul says it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Who are the imperial guard? You know, Rome, they had 9,000 elite soldiers, well-trained, highly skilled. It's like a combination of a secret service and a special armed forces. And these guys are 9,000 soldiers and they only serve for 12 years. And when they are serving, they're paid double the wage of an ordinary soldier. And after 12 years, they retire and they become part of the political system in Rome. Many of them will end up as in the Roman Senate. So they are very powerful men, strong men, powerful men. And the Bible says Paul was chained to one of these guys every six hours. See, there are 9,000 men. So every six hours, one man is tied up to Paul in chains. So Paul was tied to a Roman, uh, a Roman soldier for six hours, one of these elite forces. Imagine that. That means in, in one day, it is uh, four people. And in two years that he has already been in imprisonment, it is almost 2,900 prisoners, that he, uh, 900 soldiers that he would have been tied to. In other words, why is this important? Do you know what, how Paul lived his life? When Paul and Silas were thrown in prison in Acts chapter 16, we have a record. He starts to worship God. He starts to pray. He starts to praise. He starts to preach the gospel. So can you imagine this? Being tied to Paul for six hours in a day. In the beginning, he might have said, hey, what's your name? And he would say, oh, my name is uh, Justice. Okay. And then he starts to talk to them. And this is what he would eventually do. He would start to dictating uh, his, his letter to a church or he would start to worship God or pray in tongues. The Bible says Paul prayed in tongues more than others. And maybe he would start to worship and praise God. Maybe he would try to explain why he is there. And this is the key. He has captive audience four times a day. And Paul would have taken every opportunity to share the gospel. And now Paul boldly writes to the Philippian church. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Whole imperial guard. In other words, he says, all of them know that I'm here for the gospel. I'm here for Christ. Secondly, I want you to pay attention to this. My imprisonment is for Christ. See, the translators in English have to translate this for the sake of Christ. For Christ, I have been a prisoner. But this word in, in the Greek is the word en Christos. Last week, I shared with you that this phrase appears in the book of Philippians at least 10 times. Because the book, whole book of Philippians is so saturated with Jesus and the gospel that Paul says, my life is in Christ. Remember the four movements I shared with you? Through Jesus, we are saved. We are saved for Jesus and we walk with Jesus and we experience life in Jesus. In Jesus, we have everything. So Paul was experiencing in Jesus here. That's the Greek word, in, in Christos. But in the English, it doesn't make sense. My imprisonment is in Christ. So they said, my imprisonment is for Christ. But what Paul was actually saying is my imprisonment. Everyone knows my imprisonment is for the advance of the gospel that I'm actually in chains in Christ. See, it is Paul who writes to us in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. What did he say? 
This is a word that we talked about last week about koinonia, partnership, isn't it? He says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, share in his sufferings. I want to share in his sufferings. In other words, Paul wants to partner with Christ in Christ's sufferings. So now he's in Roman prison for Christ and he is suffering in Christ. He is sharing together with Christ's suffering. So my imprisonment is in Christ. I want you to take a step back and think about this. Many times pastors and leaders may end up um, coming to a place where they are in trouble. Yeah, we have heard about stories of uh, leaders, church leaders being in trouble with the law. And sometimes they are in the they are in trouble with the law because they broke the law, right? Or they were doing something against the government or against the local uh, law. I want you to listen to me. This is what, not what Paul is saying about himself. He is not in prison because he broke the law. He didn't break any law. He was not a political dissident. He was not against Caesar. He was not against the Roman government. He was not against any of the system that they have put in place. He was proclaiming the gospel that Christ Jesus is Lord. He was defending the gospel that there is no other way for salvation except through Jesus. The son of God became son of man. That is what he was in prison for. They threw him in prison because of his faith in Jesus. So he knows he's not a political dissident. He's a, polit he's a prisoner in Christ. And he says, I'm not the only one who knows it. Even the whole Praetorian God, even the whole Imperial God, they know that I'm in prison to advance the gospel and I'm in prison in chains in Christ. I want you to listen to me. Sometimes you land into trouble because of your own mistake. Don't just say, I'm, in, I'm suffering for Jesus. No. You and I, we need to have a clear understanding. Paul lived a blameless life. And that is why he even, he even prayed for them, that you would be pure and blameless and approve what is excellent. So a man who had such high moral standards, ethical standards, here he's in prison, not because of any wrongdoing, but because of his faith in Jesus, he's suffering in Christ's suffering for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, his imprisonment is in Christ. And that's the key difference I want you to capture. So he says, my imprisonment is in Christ. Verse 14, he talks about the second thing. His colleagues were emboldened. Look at that. Verse 14 says, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord. I want you to circle that word confident. By my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, they are much more bold to speak. Twice it's repeated that they spoke without fear, they spoke with much boldness, and they had great confidence in God by Paul's imprisonment. Whenever Paul writes brothers, he usually speaks about pastors and church leaders. And here he's saying the pastors and church leaders in Rome, right, among the believers in Rome, they became bold. Why? They said, Paul even if he's in, he's in prison for Christ, he's in prison, he's bold enough to share the gospel. How much more we should be doing this when we are free? So the men became bold, hallelujah. 
Isn't that right? When you hear a missionary come back and give a report of how they are serving God in the midst of all the painful challenges that they face in life. It really tugs your heart to say, Lord, you have kept me in this country in a safe environment. How much more I should live for you. And that is the key here. And he says, these are brothers. And he says, they are becoming more confident in the Lord and they are preaching boldly without fear. See, whenever Paul writes to the church, he always addresses certain false preachers, isn't it? Like the book of Galatians, he would say there are some who would preach uh, a different gospel. But here he's, he's talking about people who are not preaching a different gospel. They are preaching Christ, but they are preaching boldly. And that's the first thing he mentions. The second thing he mentions is his critics were exposed. Look at this in verse 15 to verse 17. He talks about that there are some who preach Christ out of rivalry and envy. Circle those two words. And these are people who preach from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So in verse 15, he talks about two kinds of preachers. One preach out of envy and rivalry and one preach out of goodwill. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, he says, the former, meaning the one who preached from envy and rivalry, they preach out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So sad to read this, isn't it? That there was men in the kingdom of God who looked at Paul's imprisonment and wanted to tell the world, see, Paul is in prison because God has deserted him. Paul is in prison, maybe because Paul is so sinful that God had to punish him and put him aside. Why? Otherwise, why is he so long stuck in a prison? Listen to me carefully. They preach out of selfish ambition because they could be ambitious in their own life. They want to promote their own ministry. So they look at Paul and they got envious. Paul is well known. Secondly, Paul has uh, apostolic authority. Paul has a giftedness that is so clearly evident and they compare themselves and they despair and they say with envy, with rivalry, with competition, they want him to be out of the picture and once he is in prison, they are bold. Now they are saying, oh wow, we can preach now but they are not sincere. Isn't that what Paul prayed in verse 10 so that you will be pure and blameless, sincere and blameless. Here, some men, even in gospel ministry, are not sincere. See, at the same time, there are people who are inspired by Paul, who was in prison. The same imprisonment inspired some. The same imprisonment made somebody to be insincere. Look at this. How insincere they were. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, the latter do it out of love. Two kinds of preachers. Two different motives, one out of selfish ambition and rivalry and envy, this one, out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So Paul not only had a prison problem, Paul had a people problem. And you will always find this when you're going through challenges. The first, there are sometimes you think that people are with you, but only when you go through a challenge, you truly know who are for you. Because there are people who would be uh, always with you, but never truly for you. And only fault lines will start to appear in the relationships only when you go through challenges. I want to give you a leadership principle. Jesus says to the two disciples that came to him and said, can we sit on your left and on your right? 
And you know what Jesus said to them? If you do not know how to suffer with me, you will not be able to reign with me. In other words, if you suffer with me, you will reign with me. If you're able to walk through a, with, a, with a person when they're going through pain, then when times of prosperity comes, you have every right to experience that success together. But if you kick a man who is down and you, you deny him and you reject him and you ignore him and you sideline him and marginalize him. And then when he comes into prominence and prosperity, you cannot expect something different. Listen to me carefully. Always remember this. There will be people who try to gut, uh, kick you in the gut when you're down. But remember this, God is always for you, not against you. In this circumstance, Paul was saying, doesn't matter whether the brothers are inspired by my imprisonment or whether they, 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 their insincerity shows up. It doesn't matter. What Paul recognizes is there will always be people with impure motives around us. We have to accept that reality. And secondly, Paul re recognizes ultimately God's purpose will come to pass. And here, Paul says, in the midst of all this, I want to see how gospel-centered, how theocentric Paul is. <clears throat> Look at verse 16. Verse 16, especially, he talks about knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Knowing that I'm put here. Paul recognizes that he is in chains and he's facing this public scrutiny this disapproval, this denunciation, because God placed him there. I want you to take a moment to think about this church because he didn't get there by himself. God has led him step by step to be there. And he's there because of the sovereignty of God. It's the plan of God and he's there to fulfill the purpose of God. So that's why no matter what you're going through, we always come back to this to say, God has put me here. So listen to me carefully. If you are an elder, you are called and put by God in the church to bring, to shepherd the church, to lead the church. If you're a pastor or a leader during this lockdown, you're there to keep encouraging your congregation to bring, the, to bring the word of God to them and to show them the way by living a life of example. If you're a husband, you're, you're put there in that marriage so that you will lead boldly. You will lead strongly. You will provide and nurture your family in the ways of God. If you're a single mom, you're put there by the Lord so that in this moment, you will find how God is a very present help for you and you will depend upon him for him to be the husband and for him to be the father to your children. Listen, no matter what situation you're in, you recognize that God has sovereignly put me here because when you do that, you will find joy in that sovereignty of God. Hallelujah. No, so I want you to take a moment and think about this. What prison do you find yourself in? What chains are binding you in right now? And would you be able to clearly say that, that God has placed me here in this situation? Maybe it is a chain of singleness. Maybe you're single for a while. And you've been single for a long time. And you're saying, oh, this chains, I can't bear this. Or it, could be a sing or it could be a chain of being in ill health. Maybe in this season, you're going through painful situations of visiting doctors and doing things. And you're saying, this chains is unbearable for me to bear. 
Can, you, can I humbly say this? No matter what change you currently face in life, that change can still advance the gospel. Can I humbly say this? Know this, that God is the one who put you there. And if you trust in him, he will accomplish his purpose for the good of the kingdom of God and for his glory. Hallelujah. And God is a sovereign God. The third thing that Paul is saying here is the defense of the gospel. The defense of the gospel is a very interesting word. It is the gospel apologetics. You know, you and I, we, we hear the word apologetics. It means to defend our faith, isn't it? Right from the time of Paul, they had defended their faith. How? But the apologetics usually is in the context where you live. So for Paul, what was the apologetics he was doing? He, the, for Paul, the way he was defending the gospel is by proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the way to salvation. He's the Jewish Messiah that has come and Jewish faith is, and, and the Christian faith is not a threat to the Roman Empire. So Paul was defending the gospel by saying it is not a threat to the Roman Empire. It is not that, the, it is not a, that Jesus Christ is the only way through the through the scriptures, through the, through the, for the Judaizers to come to faith in Christ. This is the only way that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So over the years, apologetics takes a different turn. In the medieval times, it was the challenges that came out of Islam and, and, and the other, other uh, pagan and philosophical truths. So in those times, our apologetics is different. But today in the postmodern era, where morality is uh, very subjective and people have it is up to you there is no truth it's all relative and it's up to you you determine what is right and what is true for you we need to defend the gospel the gospel is this it is a message to believe it is a person to receive and it's the life to live and Paul says through his life he defended so when he looks at his captors the captors are being evangelized. He looks at his colleagues. The colleagues were emboldened. He looks at his critics and the critics were exposed. But in all these things, Paul still found joy. You know why joy was possible? Because of verse 18. He says, what then shall I do? What then can we do? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Circle that. And in that I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. Paul says, I rejoice in the fact that I'm in chains, but in the midst of my chains, I rejoice. You know why? Because Christ is being proclaimed. I rejoice in the fact that my critics, even though they are brothers, they could be insincere with impure motives, but yet when they speak, they are speaking Christ and Christ is proclaimed. You know, Paul makes the distinction between the motive and the message. See, the preacher could be preaching for wrong motive. The preacher could be preaching with wrong motive, but he could still be preaching the right message. The wrong motive, God will deal with it, but the right message will still save the souls. Hallelujah. You know, story was told of an evangelist who went from town to town and to minister the gospel. And he would, he would usually show a video, uh, movies in this village where he will have a projector and he show the movies. And once the movies are over, then he will uh, talk to the people about faith in Christ and salvation and the gospel. And he has, because he has to drive a van, he had a driver to take him from village to village. And the driver was a pre-believer. He was not a believer. And one day this uh, evangelist was very sick. 
So he was lying in bed and uh, he called his driver and said, uh, I want you to take a break today. Go home because I'm so sick. I can't go anywhere. You go. And the driver said to him, sir, I'm free. I know I've been following you all this time. So I know what to do. So let me go and show some movies uh, in different places. So they said, OK, take the van and go. So he drove the van to a village and started showing the movies. Of course, at the end of the movies, the people were still hanging around, eagerly waiting for what's next. So the driver didn't know what to do. So he just got up on stage and started to preach the gospel to them. And two of them got saved that night. And so this driver ran quickly back to, came quickly back to the evangelist and says, now I did what you normally do. I said the same things you would normally do. And two people are very curious about taking the next step with Jesus. So what do I need to do? Tell me so I can go tell them. <laughs> In other words, the man was not saved. Yet God used him to save souls. Why? Because the message of the gospel is powerful to produce life. Even if it comes from a messenger who has impure motives and insincere. Can I humbly say this? That's why just because God uses you in gospel ministry doesn't necessarily mean that you're living a pure life, a blameless life, a glorifying life, a fruitful life, a life that is approved of God. Can I humbly say this? The giftedness and approval of God are two different things. God uses you because God is good, not because you are good. So come back to this place to recognize that God is indeed pleased when we live a pure life, a blameless life, and know how to approve what is excellent and continue to bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives that we will bring glory to him and we will benefit the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. So Paul says, what then can I say to all this? The only reason I will be joyful in the, in the experience of public denunciation is because Christ is proclaimed. And because of the gospel centeredness, Paul was able to say, it's okay. No matter what, I'll be happy. I'll be joyful. Hallelujah. The second thing I want you to capture is Paul's joy in the expectation of providential deliverance. Verses 19 to verse 26. I want to give you four things to write down. Because these four things will be covered in verses 19 all the way to verse 26. His confidence was in God's deliverance. His commitment was for God's glory. His conviction was that Christ is his life. And fourthly, his compass was set to invest in others. Let's look at it one by one. His confidence was in God's deliverance. Look at verse 19. He already says in second part of verse 18, I rejoice again. I say I rejoice. And he says in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers, the prayers of the saints in Philippi and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Couple of things I want you to paint, uh, pay attention to you. My deliverance. You know, the word deliverance here in the Greek is the word soterio. And soteria is the word for salvation. So Paul says here, your prayers, through your prayers and the spirit of Jesus working out for God's glory and for my good, it will turn out for my deliverance. He has an anticipation. He has an eager expectation that everything will turn out for deliverance. You know, one of the things that I love about the word salvation is in English word, we usually use the word saved. When a person is, 
saved, born again, we say that person is saved. We say Jesus saves. But one of the beautiful pictures in the Bible, in the New Testament is salvation is seen as deliverance. It is not just you are saved because the saved, the word saved is uh, save some cake uh, so that I can enjoy it tomorrow for dessert or, or save some money so that later on when there is a rainy day, I will have something to use. We will always save is in that connotation of kept for later use. So it doesn't really convey the message of salvation. But the word saved, if it is replaced by the word delivered, wow, what a powerful image that it produces. Here Paul says, it will turn out for my salvation. It will turn out for my deliverance. Do you know your salvation is a deliverance? The word soterio, it will have at least four meanings. Let me give you one by one. You can write it down. Number one, it could be that it's talking about ultimate salvation. Paul says, through your prayers, through the work of the Spirit, I will be ultimately saved. Because Paul knows that, that he is not presently fully delivered. Paul is the one who wrote in Galatians, Christ has redeemed us. He has delivered us from the present evil age. You and I know we are still in the world, but what did Christ deliver us out of? The present evil age. In other words, the present evil system, value system, worldview that is currently functioning in the world. We are delivered from it. That's why you are saved doesn't convey it, but you're delivered. In Colossians, he writes and he says, you're delivered from the domain of darkness. In other words, from the kingdom of darkness, you're delivered. And now you're set up in the, you're transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Hallelujah. Kingdom of light. In other words, you have been delivered. In other words, this has decisive breakthrough. He has delivered you. He has rescued you. And Paul understands this. He says there will be an ultimate deliverance in his life. So he says through your prayers and the work of the spirit, there will be an ultimate deliverance. What is the ultimate deliverance? This way, you and I, we need to acknowledge this, that Paul's view of salvation is there is a past, there's a present, there's a future. Let me say that again. What is the past? I have been delivered. What is the present? I am being delivered. And what's the future? I will be delivered. See, you are delivered from the past. In the past, what have you been delivered from? You've been delivered from the penalty of sin. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. Today, every single day, you appropriate the gospel into your life. You're delivered from the power of sin. You, you die to your temptation. You don't yield to your temptation, but you overcome it through the power of the gospel. And as a result of the work of Christ being applied to you, you have the power to overcome sin. So the penalty of sin, you have been delivered from. The power of sin, you're being delivered daily. But one day, you'll be delivered from the presence of sin. You'll be delivered ultimately from this world and you go into heaven and in the presence of God, there is no presence of sin. So praise God for that. So your salvation has a past and a present and a future. In other words of saying, I, have, I am saved, I was saved, I am being saved and I will be saved. So Paul says, you pray for me and through your prayers, I will, this will turn out for my deliverance. So ultimate salvation will happen. Or the second one he could be used for that word delivered is I will be released from this prison. That Caesar will vindicate me that I'm not a political dissident and he will release me for the gospel work. Or it could be that finally he says, I might die here, could be executed. 
And even if I'm executed, I'm delivered from this world and I'll be with my Lord. Hallelujah. And here, the beautiful picture that he paints is through your prayers and through the work of the Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. I love this picture. I want you to catch this church because he says that through your prayers. Do you know how important it is for us to recognize that Paul needed prayers when he was in prison? See, Paul is the one who boldly declares this. In verse 6, he said, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Paul is confident in God who preserves us. He is confident that it's God who helps us to persevere. But at the same time, Paul also asks for the prayers of the saints in Philippi. You know why? Because it's, there's no guarantee that tomorrow, Paul will still be strong and courageous in proclaiming the gospel. Imagine this scenario. Paul is standing before a Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor asks him, if you can deny Christ, if you can reject Christ, I will let you live. And what if Paul don't have the courage anymore? What if Paul doesn't have that within him anymore? And he is frail, he's weak because the suffering has produced such pain in his life. He wants to be set free. And finally, he, he just collapses and he says, okay, I reject Christ. What would happen? So Paul doesn't want to take it for granted. He requests that the prayer of the saints be applicable for him. He prays, he asks them to pray for him. Pray that God will be with me and it will turn out for my deliverance. I want to ask you this. I want to take a moment and ask you, how often do you pray for your pastor? How often do you remember your leaders in prayer? The Bible says, pray for your leaders. Pray for the ones who are leading this nation. Pray for the ones who are leading you in spiritual way of life. How, how do you, how do, because we need your prayers. I need your prayers for my marriage to be fruitful. I need your prayers so that my parenting can continue to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. I need your prayers so that I will continue to stay strong in the scriptures, stay strong in the spirit of God, stay full of faith and full of wisdom to do the ministry that God has called us to do. That depending upon the gospel, not depending upon our own effort, but depending upon Christ who gives us strength, that you would pray because your prayer is a means through which God encourages the preacher. And this is important. That's why you and I, we need to partner together in the gospel and pray for one another and support one another even in this season. And Paul prays here and he says, I want you to pray for me because through your prayer, this will turn out for my deliverance. The third thing he says is his commitment was for God's glory. I want you to capture this in verse 20. It says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I want to just highlight this verse, whether by life or by death. See, Paul is not thinking about deliverance only from the prison. Paul is thinking about deliverance, whether it is by life or by death, that it will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, whether he comes out of prison or he gets executed, Paul is still going to be delivered. If he comes out of prison, he's delivered from his present condition. But if he's going to be killed and executed, he will still be delivered from this evil age and he will be in the presence of God. So whether it is by life or by death, it will turn out for the good. Hallelujah. But I want to pay attention to two words that he uses here. He says that Christ, that I will not be at all ashamed. Circle that word ashamed. And then he says, with full courage, as always, that Christ will be honored. 
See, I want you to think about this. Paul lived with a paradigm of shame and honor culture. See, many times you and I, we think in terms of guilty and innocent. See, guilty and innocent is like this. If Paul is found, if Paul would desert Christ, Paul will be found guilty, isn't it? If Paul denies Christ, Paul will be found guilty. Paul is not innocent, Paul will be found guilty. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if I deny Christ, or if I give up on Christ, I will be ashamed. Because ashamed means I dishonor somebody else. Because if I'm guilty, it is only a guilty and innocence is personal terms. Guilty and innocent is legal terms to, for an individual. But when it comes to shame and honor, it is not just individualistic. It is actually a communal terms. Listen to me carefully. Shame and honor not only affects you, it affects the entire people who are attached to you in some way. Listen, shame and honor. So what Paul was saying in this verse is, I don't want to be ashamed. Why? I don't want to deny Christ or let go of Christ and crumble like a $2 suitcase and therefore be shamed. And if I'm shamed, Christ's name will be dishonored. So I'm not concerned about whether I fall into sin or not. I'm concerned about the honor of my God. Hallelujah. The honor of my Savior. And because I'm concerned about the honor of my Savior and the honor of the people who are attached to me in relationship, I want to make sure that I don't put them into shame. This shame and honor is very important. See, I come from a culture, an Asian culture, where it's not just about guilt and innocence. Guilt and innocence is mostly a Western construct. The Eastern construct, the Asian construct, is all about community. It's about family honor. It is about shame. You brought shame to the family. Because of you brought shame to the family, we disown you. All that shame and honor. You know, as a pastor over the years, as I've counseled young people, parents have brought young people into my presence many times. I'm saying this with much burden. Listen to me carefully. Where a child has done something grievous is uh, um, it's unthinkable. And, and being, a, being an Asian uh, culture, the parents, when they bring the child like that, they're coming because they're, they're going through such pain because their honor, they their family honor has now become dishonored in the eyes of people. And so the one thing that I always humbly request for the child is, regardless of the age of that child, is that they will repent, receive the instruction, and walk in humility, and walk in repentance, and walk in, in, a, in a place where they keep themselves accountable, and reconcile, not only with God, but also to the family. Therefore, in the process of time, what the action that has brought shame to the family through the process of time will restore the family's honor. But I'm not, I'm, I'm saddened by one too many times when the child rebels, rejects the wisdom, rejects the disciplinary process and is bent on doing the evil that got them into that place of shame. And when there is no repentance and they cling on to that sin, what happens is shame continues. And when shame continues, it not only brings shame to the person, but it dishonors the entire family. 
And there are many who go through still that painful experience of being dishonored in the eyes of people because of the shame and honor culture. Now, I want to give you a practical example to think about. Maybe you go on a mission trip to a certain country in the Middle East. And you go on this mission trip and you find a young kid playing in the, in the field with his friends. And you call one of these young kids and you give him a football to play with. You gift him a football. You may think, I've only innocently given a gift to this uh, innocent. There's nothing. There's innocently I'm giving a gift to this kid to play with a football. But do you know, you might have brought dishonor to the family. I tell you how. If the kid comes from a family where the father is not able to buy a football for the child, by you giving a football to the child, you have dishonored and brought shame to that father because he can't afford to buy a ball. So you have highlighted the fact that he is unable to provide for his family. Therefore, you dishonored him and brought shame to him. Not only that, if the child that you gave a ball was not the leading boy in the neighborhood, but he was one of the boys, he's not the leading boy. And the leading boy doesn't have a football. Now an ordinary boy has the football. You have now dishonored and shamed the leading boy in the neighborhood. So by you giving just the innocent gift of football to a boy, you have alienated both his father and the leading boy in that neighborhood. And as a result, they will not receive from you anything. Listen to me carefully. How shame and honor works. And that's what Paul was saying here. Paul was saying that he's, in a, he's caught in this place where he doesn't want to dishonor Christ. For him to not dishonor Christ, he should not be ashamed of the gospel. And he should not be ashamed of the chains. He should not be ashamed of the critics. He should not be ashamed of the crisis that he's facing. Because if he goes through shame, he will not only shame himself, but he will bring dishonor to God. Therefore, he needs to hold on to being unashamed of the gospel so that Christ will be honored. And here Paul goes on to say, I want this to happen because I'm committed to God's glory. Look at the next one. His conviction was that Christ is life. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, the most famous scripture and probably the anchor scripture for the entire book. Chapter 1 and verse 21 says, for, to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Circle that. For me to live is Christ. I already said how gospel-centered this whole book is. And Paul again emphasizes his own personal conviction. He says, Christ is my life. See, for a believer... Your life is not found in the work that you do. Your life is not in the money that you have in your bank. It's not about your net worth or your social status or who you married and how many children you have or whether you are able to buy a house or not able to buy. None of that matters. Christ is life. My life is hidden in him and he is my life. In other words, he's your self-worth. He's your security. Christ is your satisfaction in life. Christ is your significance in life. Everything that you need in life. He's the source of all your joy and your blessings. And he's the strength in every sorrow that you go through. He's the comfort. He's the one. And Paul says, Christ is life. I want to give you three statements just to write down quickly. Christ is life. Not only Christ is life. Christ transforms life. Not only Christ transforms life, Christ transcends life. What is transcending life? That Christ surpasses life. 
you cannot truly have life unless you have life. <laughs> you cannot truly enjoy life unless you truly have life. And that life is found in Christ. And that is the conclusion that Ecclesiastes, the book that we just finished examining, talks about. Unless you put God into the equation, you cannot enjoy life. You don't have a joy, joyful life, a life filled with meaning and purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment if you don't have God. And that is why Paul here brings Christ into the equation and he says, Christ is my life. And because Christ is my life, death is gain. I love that word gain because it's the word for profit. When you invest something, you, you get a return, isn't it? A return on your investment. And he says, I, Christ is my life. That means death is more gain, more profit. How it is more profit? Because I get more Christ. Now, when I'm alive, I get Christ. When I'm with him, when I leave this earth and I'm with him, I get more of him. I get to love him more. I get to in, intimately know him more. And I get, I get to experience everything about him there. Hallelujah. So in other words, Paul was thinking with this. See, sometimes we always say, when someone dies, we say they have left the land of the living. <laughs> can, you hum, can I humbly say this? This is not the land of the living. This is the land of the dying. The land of the living is up there. The land of the living is where Christ is present in, in, in eternity. That's the land of the living. So you're not leaving the land of the living. You're going into the land of the living. Death is not the end of life. Death is actually the enlargement of life. You come to a place where your life is now beyond this earth. You experience life in a new dimension. And that is why as a Christian, we believe this. Death is not a loss. It is a gain. How do we gain? Let me give you three things how we gain. How can Christians gain through death? One, we lose everything that we don't need. We don't, we don't, we, we don't need this. What we don't need? We don't need the flesh, the world, the devil. We don't need the troubles. We don't need the trials. We don't need the tears. We don't need any fears and our weaknesses. We lose all of them here when you die. Not only you lose everything you don't need. Secondly, you keep everything that matters. What, do you, what matters in the, in the long run? Your personality, your memories, your identity, your knowledge of people and knowledge of God. Those things you will keep. Keep everything that matters. And thirdly, you gain what you never had before. You gain something that you never had. What you, what you didn't have? You didn't have experience of being in the angelic presence. Maybe seeing heaven and, and all its beauty and glory. And seeing and hearing the heavenly orchestra playing and, and worshipping God. Wow, what a beautiful sight will be to see the saints of old from the Old Testament and in the early part of the church. Wow, what a gain it will be. And that's why for a Christian, we don't lose anything. But Paul says, I gain everything. And finally, he comes down to say his compass was set to invest his life in others. In verse 22 to verse 26, he says, I'm ready to go. Listen to this. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Actually, Paul doesn't have the choice. He already established that God is sovereign in every aspect of life. But he still says, in my own preference, I tell you what I would prefer. I don't know what I would prefer. 
I don't know whether to go or to stay because if I stay here, it is fruitful labor for me. But if I go, I be with Christ. So look at verse, next verse. It says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. I love that picture. Circle that word depart. Because Paul is the one who says, my departure is at hand in 2 Timothy. You know, the word picture, the word picture for depart, it carries these things. Number one, it, in the Greek, it carries that you are released from a prison. So you depart from, you leave the prison and you're free now. Secondly, it also like a, a ship that is set sail. You leave the dock and you're going into the ocean. Thirdly, it is like taking down a tent. You are living in a camp, you take down the tent and you're moving from one location to another. That's the word picture. Number four, it is like unyoke a beast of burden. A beast from its burden. In other words, you untie the burden from a beast. In other words, you let go of all the burdens you've been carrying. That's the word for depart. He says, it's better for me to depart and be with Christ. But for your progress, next line, he says in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. For your purpose, verse next 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Circle that whole thing. For your progress. See, Paul says, I was in prison for the progress of the gospel. Now he says, I will continue to remain in the flesh so that for your progress and for the joy in the faith. Listen to me carefully. Even in his chains, he's thinking about how to help the people, not only around him, but also the people who are in the city of Philippi. And he says, one day I'm praying that through your prayers and the work of the spirit, God will set me free and I'll come all the way to see you so that you will grow in the, in the grace of God. You will grow in the gospel. You will grow in godliness. So you will have joy in the faith. Hallelujah. See, if you're in the faith, you should be joyful regardless of circumstance. So that's what Paul was saying here. And he says, for your progress and for your joy in the faith, I want to come to you. And towards the end, I want you to listen to me in verse 26. He says, so that in me, you will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I love that glory in Christ. Remember I shared with you shame and honor. That same paradigm is used here. When I come and meet you in Philippi, in Philippi, your joy will not only increase, you will also progress and advance in the gospel. As a result of me coming to you, you will give ample glory to Christ. In other words, Christ will be honored in my deliverance. Hallelujah. I want you to listen to me carefully. Here is a man who is committed to gospel. He is a man who is committed to the gospel ministry. He's a man who is completely committed and his compass is set to help others to continue in the gospel. Story was told of uh, Adoniram Judson. Here's a man who had a calling to go to Burma. He was the first missionary to leave United States from Massachusetts. And when he left, he actually went to his girl, uh, fiance, who he was supposed to marry. He went to her and said, uh, would you give me your hand in marriage and come with me to the jungles of Asia and there die for the cause of Christ? That was his proposal. I don't know why that girl said yes. <laughs> I don't know which girl will ever say yes. But she said yes. So Adoniram Judson and his 
new wife, set sail, and eventually ended up in the land that is known as Myanmar today, Burma. And when they started to minister there, they went through so many hardships, prison time, and so many illnesses. After 14 years of ministry there, Adoniram Judson writes that the only thing he has to show forth as gospel fruit in his life is the grave of his wife and the graves of all his children. There was no converts. Nothing much has happened in 14 years. But the man still remained committed to the land that was sent, that God sent him there. He was like Paul. He says, God put me here. Do you know what was his prayer? The man's prayer was recorded in his uh, biography. This is his prayer. He prayed for two things. One, Lord, don't take me home. Don't take me home or don't take me out of this land without having these two things. One, I want to translate the entire Bible in the native language. And number two, I want to see at least 100 people converted to Christ and live for Christ. And then you can take me home. See, Adoniram Judson would have said to the Lord, Lord, 14 years I had nothing. I had suffered a lot. I've shown, I've sown the seed of gospel. Maybe it's time for me to go home and be with Christ and be with my wife and my family in heaven. But you know what he did? He chose to remain in that land and die in that land. And God used him. Today, there is, a, uh, there is over 200,000 Christians who, ask, who give their commitment to Christ in that land because of one man who laid down his life, like Paul. I want you to listen to me carefully. This is the kind that, that someone is motivated to commit their life to the gospel. They're not concerned about the chains because in the chains, Christ is being preached. Christ is being made known. In the midst of critics and criticism, they're not concerned. Why? Because Christ is magnified and Christ is proclaimed whether in pretense or in truth. Not only that, in crisis, even facing probable death, they come to a place to be able to say, my deliverance is in Christ. Christ is my life and death is a gain. But I will stay for your progress and joy in faith. That's why I want to say this humbly. If you're a shepherd, you cannot leave your flock just because it's difficult. If you're a missionary, you cannot leave the mission field just because it is difficult. If God has called you for a place, stay committed to that place. Because the key thing is this church. We are always looking at how to avoid pain and enhance the pleasure in our lives. That's human nature. But how many of us can truly come before God and say, Lord, even in my midst of my pain, even in the midst of my chains, I recognize the chains have given me a contact with the lost. The chains has produced the advancement of the gospel. Yes, there are critics who are insincere, but there are people who, in my imprisonment that have also been inspired. I want to live for your glory. I want to live for the glory of God and for the good of your kingdom. I don't want to shame you. I want to honor you. That is the commitment that God is looking for. A person who has captured the gospel, who has applied the gospel to their own life, can come to that place to dedicate. You may wonder, but pastor, I'm not there in that journey. Can I humbly say this? That's the journey God is taking you through. You and I, we need to recognize. You know, I was watching a documentary on Hudson Taylor recently. 
And as I was watching it, I was weeping and weeping and weeping because here is a man who was totally committed to the land, to the foreign country that God had brought him. And today his legacy is not only him, his family, his children, they're all giving their lives. His grandchildren have given their lives for that salvation of that country. I want to give, I want to, I want to thank the Lord for the people who came to India, stayed there in the midst of all the persecution and brought gospel. And so that my family, my household, my forefathers can come to faith in Christ. I thank God for all of them that have gone ahead of time to missionary field in Asia and to the different parts of the world. But today, can God use you for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom? Don't just live in comfort in a Western world. Come before God and say, Lord, here is my life. Take me, use me for the advancement of the gospel. Whether it's change, whether it's criticism or whether it's critics or crisis of death, doesn't matter. I want to live for the glory of God and I want to live for the extension and the advancement of the kingdom of God. That is the Christian, that is the Christian life. And you know, the reason why Paul was saying is, it's not because Paul was, uh, was willingly wanting to go through all this. You know, the reason why Paul did it is not because he loves winning the loss. It is not because he loves planting churches. It is not because he loves traveling. The reason why Paul would do all this and endure all this is because he was in love with the savior. That's why this book is a gospel-centered book. It's a book filled with how Paul loves Christ and how Christ loves Paul. Listen to me carefully. The only reason why he did that is because he loves Christ, because he knows Christ loves him. There's a passage of scripture I want to just read for you. I don't have time, but I will just bring it in a summary in John chapter 17. And look at this in verse 19. In John chapter 17 and verse 19, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prayed this as a high priestly prayer for his people, for the disciples. And this is what he said, for their sake, for the sake of the disciples, Jesus says, I consecrate myself. You know the word consecrate means, it means this, I set apart myself, I sanctify myself because for their sake, for our sake, Jesus sanctified himself. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus consecrated himself for our sake? This is what it means. He left heaven for our sake. He became man for our sake. He experienced all the temptations for our sake. He lived a perfect life in obedience to God and his word for our sake. He died the death that we and I deserve for our sake. He carried our curse upon the cross for our sake. He was chastised for our peace, for our sake. And the Bible says he was wounded, he was beaten, he was stripped, and eventually he died. That painful way of death for our sake. And because Jesus sanctified himself for our sake. So if you ask Jesus today, Jesus, why did you die on the cross? You know what Jesus would say? For me to live is you. For me to live is you. For me to die is gain. Because I gain you. For your sake. And when Paul thinks of that gospel, Paul says this. For me to live is Christ. Why do I sanctify myself? I sanctify myself for the sake of the one who sanctified himself for me. I consecrate my life for the sake of the one who consecrated his life for me. I choose life because I'm loved by 
his life. For Jesus, for him to live is for me. For me to live is Christ. That was the response that Paul did. And as a result, Paul can boldly look at his death penalty, the execution, the threat of execution. And Paul can say, it will work out for my salvation. It will work out for my ultimate deliverance. You know why? Because for me to live is Christ and to die means more Christ. God bless you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before your throne room of grace. We ask that you forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, we want to live a gospel-centered life. We want to love Jesus just like Paul loved Jesus. And we want to receive that love that Jesus loved us. The reason why we love him is because he first loved us. Help us to appreciate, acknowledge, and accept that love in our lives, Lord. That the gospel is a message to believe that Christ died for us. That the gospel is a person to receive. That Christ has become my life. That Christ has become my Lord, my King, my Master. And He is also my friend. He is also my elder brother. He is my everything. Christ is my all. And not only that, by following Him and learning from Him, I live my life like Him. So Father God, we ask that you forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, continue to help us to be anchored in the scriptures, grounded in the scriptures, continue to in yield ourselves increasingly to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, continue to be empowered by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that we will continue to live an authentic life, a blameless life, a fruitful life, and a glorifying life. That we will indeed live a life that tells the world that whether we are in chains, whether we are surrounded by critics, or whether we face crisis, that we can always be joyful and always live in a manner that advances the gospel and tells the world that we are in the King, that our life is in the King Jesus. So we thank you. We praise you. I pray your blessing upon your people. Grant them your grace. In Jesus' name and the people of God said. Amen and amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Go in his peace, church. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We love you and we are praying for you. God bless you. Thank you for watching and we hope that you enjoyed the service. So please do leave a comment below on how you've been blessed by the service and to take your next steps with us by going to connect.idmc.com.au. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow our Facebook pages for all the latest sermons and content. So God bless you and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you for listening to our message. We pray that God's word spoke to your heart and gave you an inspiration and encouragement. If you are truly blessed by this, would you take a moment to leave a comment or give us a rating on the Apple podcast service? Not only that, take an opportunity to share this on social media platforms so others who are in similar situations may be encouraged with the word of God. We love you. If you wanna connect with our church, Go to connect.idmc.com.au and share with us where you're from, what you're doing, so that we can keep you in our prayers before the Lord. God bless you. 